Church, good morning. Would you uh, stand with me as we read our passage today? If you have your Bible, I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 17. Otherwise, it's on the screen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. So I'll tell you something a little crazy about me. Twice in my life, I have heard God speak to me audibly, kind of. Throughout the Bible, there are all kinds of examples of God using dreams to speak to people. Now, I I lead a very unsensational life. I don't have very many cool stories, but twice in my life, I have very distinctly sensed that God has spoken to me directly through a dream. Do you want to know what he said? I'll I'll tell you about one of them, but I got to give you a little bit of background first so so that it makes sense. I've shared before here that I'm I'm kind of hyper-analytical, and along with that, I tend to be a little bit self-critical. So I'm Uh, quite easily given to feeling guilty about things, all kinds of different things. Uh, I've shared before, I I sometimes feel guilty for not reading the Bible uh, long enough or deeply enough or often enough. Uh, I feel comfort or I feel uh, guilty for for having too much material comfort. Uh, I have felt guilty for being warm and well-fed while another is cold and hungry. And some of these things, when we have awareness of them and they lead to godly compassion, they are great things. When they lead to guilt, not so much. So, uh, as you might expect, given that personality type, I I can struggle to enjoy things. Uh, For instance, I'll give you an example. For about the last 10 years, when my wife will ask me, what do you want for your birthday dinner? I know exactly what I want for my birthday dinner. But it's about $50. And so every year leading up to my birthday, I back out and I go, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. $50 is a lot of money to us. I can't spend $50 on my birthday dinner. Now, two years ago, I got a Groupon. Do you guys know Groupon? You like buy it ahead of time at a discount. So I found a Groupon for this particular meal. But a week before my birthday, the restaurant went out of business. I didn't get the meal. And then, but, but listen, there's good. this year, finally, after a decade, I finally had the birthday meal that I'd always wanted. I gave myself the freedom to have it. I think maybe I'm maturing. I'm opening myself up to enjoy things. But the only reason I was able to do it this year is I found out if you do it at lunch instead of dinner, you get a half portion and it's only $20. So at $20, I said, okay, we'll do it. I'll I'll have my birthday meal. Now, $20 may seem like a lot of money to you for a meal. It may seem like not a lot of money at all. Regardless, given this 10-year debate in my head, you can see the kind of neuroses I'm talking about here, all right? (laughs) So with that in mind... A couple of years ago, one night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I sat up straight in bed with total clarity of thought. I could not have been more awake if I had had a full pot of coffee and a cold shower. And as I sat there in the total darkness, I had an unmistakable understanding that God had just spoken to me directly through this dream. In my dream, my father, that is my biological earthly dad, was standing over me and he had this soft but uh, penetrating radiance about him, a kind of preternatural effervescence. It was very dream state. And on his face was the kindest, most genuinely joyful smile I had ever seen. And I could sense in the moment his total satisfaction in me. 
And if you're a parent, you probably can relate to those moments, just the perfect moments with your kids where everything is still and calm and you just have total satisfaction in their presence. And I, I felt that from him. And he looked at me with the warmth that only a father can convey. And he spoke just three words. It was a fairly short dream. Just three words in this dream. He leaned in, he leaned in and he said to me, enjoy. Just enjoy. And as he said that, at that moment, I knew in my bones that my enjoyment was his enjoyment. He was enthralled with seeing me enthralled. And that's when I knew what God wanted me to know, that as his child, he was enthralled with my enjoyment. My enjoyment of him in and through his gifts. His gifts, like my wife and my kids and cool fall mornings, pick up basketball games, the smell of warm cinnamon around Christmas time. God wanted me to enjoy him in his gifts. Now, I already knew that theological truth. I had known it for years. In fact, the Westminster Catechism, some of you may be familiar if you come from a Presbyterian background. I learned it early and it says very clearly that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So I knew this truth, but, but through this dream and God speaking to me, he took it from my head and drove it more deeply into my heart. Now, I know that many of you probably don't struggle in the same way that I do, but I bet that many of us here do struggle with how to engage the good gifts of God. And I wonder, as we prepare ourselves for this very special Christmas season this year, how are we doing at enjoying God in his gifts what does it mean to fully enjoy the gifts of God and to rightly enjoy the gifts of God? Maybe it's a little harder than it would even seem on its face because isn't there a tension in this? I mean, the central question is, how do we properly enjoy the material gifts of God without, on one hand, falling prey to guilt, but on the other, without falling prey to materialism and idolatry? How do we enjoy the gifts in right relationship to God? How do we enjoy the world and culture that God's placed us in? We're in this room, which means God has placed us in an affluent American culture. How do we enjoy the gifts of God in that culture without succumbing to materialism and idolatry? Do we embrace and enjoy the gifts of God or do we de-emphasize and decline the gifts of God? And when I read the New Testament, <clears throat> it's not immediately clear to me because I come across passages like 1 John 2, Verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. And then on the other hand, I get to James 1.17, and it says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Well, which is it? Don't love the world or anything in the world, or all good gifts are from God. Even our hymns, if you grew up, if you grew up in a more traditional church environment, some of the great hymns even seem confused on this point because on the one hand, we have turned your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. But then on the other hand, we have, this is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Well, which is it? Do the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory or... Does God shine in all that's fair? Not quite clear to me. Now, traditionally, there are two tendencies that we can have in response to this tension. On the one hand, we've got asceticism, 
Asceticism is a kind of total self-denial and austerity. It's total abstinence. And on the other hand, we have hedonism. Hedonism is a total commitment to comfort and pleasure. It's total indulgence. Asceticism, on the one hand, says, I'll only eat beans and rice because Jesus should be enough for me. And on the other hand, hedonism says, I'm only going to eat steak and lobster because God has clearly blessed me. Asceticism says, I'm going to live in the smallest space I can survive in. Hedonism says, I'm going to live in the biggest house I can convince a mortgage company to finance for me. (laughs) Asceticism says, I won't even drink a sonic slushy lest someone mistakenly think it's a daiquiri. Hedonism says, I'm going to give myself to a lifestyle of drunkenness. Asceticism says, I'll never let a donut touch my lips. I'm talking to you CrossFitter keto folks, right? (laughs) I'll never let a donut touch my lips. (laughs) Hedonism says, I'm going to eat so many donuts, I start to look like a donut. And we have these two polar responses to how we should engage God's gifts. And when I read the New Testament, I see both populations represented. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossians. They said, look, you know this kind of thing. You know this kind of response. He says, if, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teaching? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He goes, yeah, listen, I get it. You're going to be godly people, and so you have all these rules. Don't taste, don't touch, don't enjoy. And it seems wise, it seems godly, but it has no value ultimately in killing sin. And then you get to Ephesians 4, and you see the opposite, where we saw asceticism in Colossians. Now in Ephesians 4, we see hedonism. The Apostle Paul there, writing to the church, he says, look, you know some of these folks. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The NIV adds, with a continual lust for more. Philippians 3, same thing. The Apostle Paul writes, Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So we see in the New Testament church, some inclined towards asceticism, some inclined towards hedonism. Asceticism says, because of Christ, I should only forego and forsake good things. Hedonism says, because of Christ, I should only accumulate and enjoy good things. Asceticism, by the way, is not the predominant struggle for those of us in this part of the world, in the United States, in the Woodlands, Texas. Right? I mean, you you can discover that pretty quickly walking through any parking lot in our area that asceticism is not the primary response we struggle with. But the question remains, how then should we, this Christmas season, engage with the gifts of God, the good gifts of God? And this passage in 1 Timothy is going to give us a roadmap. And the first two things we're going to see are ways that we should not engage with the gifts of God. First, we're not going to engage the gifts of God with arrogant entitlement. Arrogant entitlement receives the gift thoughtlessly as a matter of right and routine. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Haughtiness, arrogant entitlement. It says things to us like this. You know what? I've earned this. I deserve this. 
And it's, it's, it's interesting for us in America because we live in a capitalistic economy. Now, laissez-faire capitalism says that the person who risks the capital and puts in the work deserves the reward that they reap. And from a, from a macroeconomic perspective, true statement. But from a macro life perspective, that kind of thinking can get us really disoriented. I'll give you an example. I recently came across a book um, on Amazon, and it's about controlling the little voice in your head. You know, kind of that self-speak, kind of like I talked about the, the decade-long dialogue about what I'm going to do with my birthday dinner. <laughs> How do you control that voice? And this book talks about that. <clears throat> this book sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and it, it says when there's a win in your life, a win, something good happens. You get a promotion at work, you do great on a project, you win the company softball league, whatever it is. Something good happens, there's three things you need to do. Step one. Make a ball with your fist and pump it close to your body while exclaiming, yes, yes. And then if someone's nearby, you give them a high five because you need to physically internalize this wind to your body. Step two, you need to say to yourself, I earned this and I deserve this. And even if you do something like win the lottery, don't let yourself chalk it up to luck or happenstance. Tell yourself, I deserve this. I earned this because I was prepared for the moment. And I was in the right state of mind, and now the universe is smiling favorably upon me. Step three, tell yourself the rest of my week is now going to go really well. Now listen, like any red-blooded American male, I love a good Tiger Woods-style fist pump, and I, I will give high fives all day long. But the question is, is this how we should engage the good gifts of God? Well, I would suggest the answer is no. And the Bible really seems to speak counter to this. For instance, 1 Corinthians 4 says, hey, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you did not receive it? James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Remember, the, the rest of my week is going to go great now. But this says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. By virtue of sitting in this room, you are in the top 50% of wealth globally. Many of you are in the top 10% of wealth globally. Still others in the top 1% of wealth globally. And some of you are in the top 0.01% of wealth globally globally. Now let me ask you a question. If you had to compete against all six billion people in the world and all of them started from the same place you did, you were all coming out of the same, same starting blocks, same resources, same advantages, do you really think you'd be in the top 50% of talent or intelligence or work ethic? Do you really think you'd be in the top 10% of that group? Would you really finish in the top 1% globally if everyone started from the same place you did? Some of you maybe, not me. I'm confident not me. I would certainly not be in the top half. And I would say this, that for all of us, our life outcomes, our money, our power, our status today are largely a function of our genetic makeup, the time and place we were born, the wealth of our parents, our natural talents and health, none of which we really had any control over. So in the end, then, all of our resources are a gift of God, aren't they? Most of what determines the outcome of our life, we really didn't have anything to do with. So what? 
So the next time you receive something good in your life, the next time you eat a single morsel of food or take a single breath of clean air, which is right now, remind yourself, I did not earn this. I do not deserve this. This is a gift of God. And then thank him deeply and sincerely from your heart in humble gratitude. First, where the passage says we're not going to engage the gifts of God with arrogant entitlement. And then second, we're not going to engage the gifts of God with misplaced hope. Misplaced hope receives a gift ravenously as a matter of idolatry. Look back at our passage. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, arrogant entitlement, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Misplaced hope. One of my favorite authors is um, John Steinbeck. And he, one of his best books is East of Eden. If you haven't read East of Eden, I would encourage you to put it on your 2019 reading list. It's a long book, but it's fantastic. And it has so much gospel truth in this book. One of the best characters in the book is a guy named Lee. Lee is a Chinese-American living in California in the 20, early 20th century. And he works as a domestic servant in the home of a, a wealthy guy in California. And he's the voice of reason. He's the sage throughout the book. And he makes a statement in there on this topic. He says, but with, but with a few exceptions, people don't want money. They want luxury. And they want admiration. And I think that word luxury is right on point with this. When we're talking about the uncertainty of riches, really what we're talking about is, is luxury. Misplaced hope is not content with the mere presence of God's provision but will only be content in the abundance of his gifts. Misplaced hope is never content merely in the presence of God's provision, but will only be content in the abundance of God's gifts. How do you know if that's you? Well, here are some diagnostic questions. Um, have, have you ever said something like, I have a home, but I want a bigger home or a better home. I have a car, but I want a nicer car. Or maybe you have sat down to a cup of ice cream in the evening and then three cups later you realize you were looking for satisfaction at the bottom of the carton and it's actually not there. That's a real illustration from my life. My family would testify to that. Maybe you're the opposite. I saw a CrossFit guy raise his hand earlier. And I'm not, by the way, I'm about to say something serious. I'm not suggesting this is you. But as a diagnostic question, maybe in your life, it could be that you exercise with an obsessive commitment to an idealized physique motivated primarily by the desire to receive validation from others through your appearance. Could that be you? My wardrobe perhaps is always new and always very expensive. My closet is always full of designer labels. Or maybe I give myself excessively to my work to the neglect of my family. I think all of those can be manifestations of a misplaced hope seeking only the abundance of God's gifts, not merely the presence of his provision. There's a Hollywood actor, Jim Carrey. He was popular in the 90s. He's like a real crazy, you know, physical comedian. He actually said something really serious and profound one time. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous so that they can see that it's actually not the answer to anything. And I think we've probably seen enough to believe that that's true. And so by way of application, we need to recognize that our happiness is ultimately not determined by our wealth or our income or our access to luxury. Our joy is not only found in the, it should not be found only in the abundance of God's good gifts, but rather in the mere presence of his provision. For us, the mere presence of God's provision should be enough. And by the way, the mere presence of his provision is all that he's promised. And so if it's all he's promised, we 
probably ought to become comfortable with the idea that that's where our contentment should be. There's an antidote to this kind of living, this kind of misplaced hope. And, and one of the antidotes is give yourself to the spiritual virtues of simplicity and contentment. Here's what Craig Blomberg says in his book, uh, Christians in an Age of Wealth. Scripture encourages contentment, but in the simple pleasures of home and family life, of work and mealtimes. And all of this contrasts dramatically with the excesses, the luxury, the riches with which the protagonist in Ecclesiastes experimented and found unsatisfactory. These things, these simple pleasures he mentions, family life and work and mealtimes, such old-timey concepts that some of the more mature congregants here understand from early in their life. And for those of my generation, grandparents and great-grandparents knew and exemplified. May that be where we go this Christmas season. So first, we're not going to engage God's gifts with arrogant entitlement. And we're not going to engage them with misplaced hope. But here the passage turns and gives us a positive instruction. But rather, we're going to engage his gifts with worshipful enjoyment. Worshipful enjoyment receives the gift gratefully as a matter of worship. Look at the passage. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God. And, and catch this, hear this part, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Charles Simeon was a British uh, pastor. He was an Anglican in the 18th century. He served at the same small church in Cambridge, England for 45 years. He died a bachelor, never married. Here's what he said. He said, we enjoy God in everything and everything in God. We enjoy God in everything and all of God's good gifts. We enjoy God and we never enjoy anything outside of enjoying it in God. This can be difficult for us because when our lifestyles become oversaturated with consumption, it creates an inability to enjoy God's simple gifts worshipfully. For instance, I've read that if we were able to talk to our ancestors from, say, 2,000 years ago, before refined sugar was a common part of the diet, an apple to them would taste much sweeter than it does to us. And I've been told by some of my CrossFit keto fans or friends who, who are able to get refined sugar out of their diet, that once you do that, your body becomes reacclimated to tasting an apple as a really sweet treat. To the point that if you actually had apple pie, it would be cloying. It would be unappetizingly too much sugar. Now again, I can't I can't comment on that from personal experience. Maybe 2019 will be my year and, and I'll come back next year and affirm that. But I will say I've become a bit of a chocolate connoisseur uh, by the leading of my wife. And I will say this, if you learn to like dark chocolate, I'm talking like 75 to 90% cocoa, milk chocolate just doesn't taste that good anymore. It's just too sweet because you've become calibrated to a different kind of living. Here's the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, gratitude, by the way, gratitude is a good thing. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration, on the other hand, adoration says, what must be the quality of that being who shines like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And then Lewis says, if I could always be what I aim at being, if I could always live in the right state of mind, if I could always live according to what I'm seeing in 1 Timothy 6, here's what would happen in my life. No pleasure would be too ordinary or too usual for such a reception. Do you hear what he's saying? 
nothing in my life would be too common, but that I would experience it with worshipful gratitude. Every breath of air would be not too common for me, but instead it would be an occasion for my mind to run up the sunbeam, back to the sun, and worship the God who gave it to me. That's what Lewis says. You know who's great at this? Little kids. Or at least I'll say my little kids have been well-trained by my wife to enjoy the simple gifts of God. For instance, we'll go for a walk around the block and it might take us 45 minutes because they're constantly stopping to pick up leaves and acorns and look at bugs. And what to me is yard trash, you need to rake this up and get it out, to them are treasures. I can't tell you how many hundreds of acorns have gone through our washing machine because they're constantly squirreling them away in their pockets. They call them their collections. And kids are great at this. They're great at enjoying the simple things that God has given us. So, might I challenge us this Christmas to take the lead of our children? And I'm actually going to encourage you to engage in a simple enjoyment challenge this year. A simple enjoyment challenge. Would you, from now to Christmas, just every day, just one time a day, take two minutes? Two minutes and find something, some common grace in your life that God has generously provided you and revel in that thing. With total presence and mindfulness, would you soak in it? Allow your heart and your senses to be overwhelmed by the beauty and sweetness of that thing. And then tell someone, share with them the good gift that God has given you and how you enjoyed it and how you're grateful to God for it. Now, it's a simple enjoyment challenge, which means if you have a newly renovated kitchen or a new sports car or something, you need to learn to enjoy those things. But what I'm talking about here is something that everybody can access. Right? Something that's commonly available to everyone. Find a simple enjoyment and revel in it. Let me give you some ideas. How about gazing on a towering pine tree near where you live? How about, the fl- how about the flickering of an advent candle in the evening? How about the soft pastels of a Texas sunset that paints the clouds for miles? We lived in the Northeast for a while, and I'm telling you, for those five years, we never saw one of those sunsets. So they don't exist everywhere. So here it is in Texas. Take advantage. How about the stillness and serenity of watching your children sleep? How about taking two minutes just to stand over your children and in prayerful, worshipful enjoyment, savor that moment? How about the joy and nostalgia of a long conversation with an old friend? How about the tang and transcendence of a South Texas ruby red grapefruit? My favorite of all the winter crops. How about this? How about in the evening when you take your long strand of waxed minty dental floss? You guys are flossing, right? I don't want to get, I don't want to get preachy here, but gingivitis is not something to joke about. When, you're, when, you, when you got your floss at night, how about taking it and taking it as an opportunity to thank God for preventative dental care and the fact that you still have teeth in your head? Have you ever worshiped God while you floss? Maybe this Christmas will be that time for you. Because research has shown pretty clearly, and I bet your personal experience corroborates this, that the more mindfully, thoroughly, and worshipfully we enjoy the simple, common pleasures that God has given us, the less we sense the need to dive deeper into consumerism and accumulation. And then, correspondingly, the freer we will become with our generosity. By the way, that's where our passage culminates. Enjoyment of God's gifts that yields generosity. Take a look at the passage, verse 18 now. As to the rich in this present age, everyone in this room, they are to, be, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation 
for the future. Have you ever asked yourself why God created you? I mean, why do you exist rather than not? God might have not created us, right? It might have been that the universe had no human population, and yet it does. Why is that? Is it that God was lonely just in the abyss of eternity? Is it that he needed to fill his idle days? Is it that he needed someone to talk to? None of those things, because we know that God exists in perfect triune relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, which means he's had perfect community for all of eternity, He's existed in a community of worship and adoration for all of eternity. He didn't need us for those things. He created us to share with us because God is love, the Bible says. And the simple and natural extension and outflow of love is sharing, isn't it? God in his very nature created us to share with us. Enjoying God in his gifts frees us to simplify our lifestyle, to lessen our possessions, to savor the simple common graces of family and sunsets and quiet moments and meals with friends. And it helps us then have less need for luxury cars and exotic vacations and material possessions because, listen, because we've become so practiced at, we've become so habituated to enjoying God's good gifts that we are able to savor the sweetness of the simplest ones, like the person who knows what it means to actually taste an apple in the right way. Like Lewis, we would say that then no gift is too common or too ordinary, that our heart would leap in worship and gratitude. Now, I will admit to you that especially during the Christmas season, I am lured by Madison Avenue and their messaging. There are car commercials during Christmas. They call it like December to remember event or Alexis holiday season or something. But they have these commercials and, and you, you see them. It's like three inches of perfectly manicured, freshly fallen snow. Snow's falling in the background. And the couple comes out Christmas morning and they're like a bevy of luxury sedans with big bows on there. I'm just like, man, what a world to live in. Why, why doesn't my driveway look like that on Christmas morning? And so I'm, I'm, I'm tugged by that. But you know what's true? As a follower of Jesus, there's something I want way more than that. Way more than that. And I think that for all of us who follow Jesus, there's something we want more than that. And it's to live out the truth of this passage. Now, I saw a video recently that I think is a counter message to December to Remember. And it's something that causes my heart to leap and fills me with aspiration for what it might be for me to follow Jesus more sincerely this season. Hey, take a look at this video. It's one minute long. I just want you to see a vision for what our lives could look like.
Friends, what a picture of the gospel. That doesn't have any of the production value of the Mercedes commercials. It was just shot on a cell phone on the subway in New York. What a compelling picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to enjoy God's gift so deeply and sincerely that we are freed up to be a people of generosity because we're no longer stuck in any kind of an aspirational spiral of wealth and affluence and the abundance of God's gifts because we become people who are just content in the mere presence of his provision. I have some friends who recently were telling me that they're probably mid-career and they were telling me that their goal for the rest of their life, their, their working life, is to fund, fully fund adoptions rather than accumulating more toys and trinkets which they could easily afford, they want to give themselves to funding adoption. Man, what a beautiful thing to give yourself to in your life. What a beautiful goal to adopt. So as we enjoy God's good gifts more thoroughly and share in our material resources more generously, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that, in fact, the way to most deeply enjoy the material gifts that God has given us is in sharing them. We find it in the very act of creation, that that's how we most enjoy God's gifts. You want to know how most to enjoy your car? Share it. Give somebody a ride. Maybe just give them your whole car. You ever thought about just giving someone your car? Maybe just do it. See if you enjoy it more. Maybe you have access to a, I don't know, a family lake house or a timeshare or a ranch. Um, you know how most to enjoy that? Share it. Invite someone to join you. In fact, if you have a ranch where you hunt and you need someone to invite to join you, <laughs> I'd be happy to accommodate that for your joy. For your joy. How to most enjoy the overabundance of food in your fridge? Share it. Invite someone over for a meal. We have some neighbors across the street. They're always out smoking meat and the whole neighborhood can smell it. You know what's great about them? Every time they're smoking, they're inviting people over to come and enjoy it with them. I love that. Be that neighbor. Be that neighbor who's always inviting people in. Now, sometimes sharing is going to mean an outright release of the thing that you love, giving total ownership to someone else. And when we do that, we're going to feel the pinch. It's going to impinge on our comfort and our convenience, as it should. Sometimes we can retain possession of the thing, and it just means inviting others in to enjoy it along with us. And in either case, whether we divest ourselves entirely of the ownership or we simply adopt an open-door policy and ask others to come and enjoy it with us, you know what's going to happen in us? We're going to see growth in our capacity to just enjoy. Just enjoy. Enjoy not by engaging God's gifts from arrogant entitlement or with misplaced hope, but worshipfully and in a way that yields generosity. So this Christmas season, as we engage God's good gifts, may we enjoy them more deeply than we ever have, more worshipfully than we ever have. And can we keep this passage front of mind and let it guide us through this season. By the way, I've talked for 30 minutes. The most important words that have been spoken by far are the words of this passage. So would you allow me just to read the passage again as we close? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Let me pray for us. 
God, more than anything, we want to take hold of that which is truly life. And God, this morning we acknowledge that true life is found in Jesus. In fact, he told us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except by him. And so God, first this morning, I ask that if there's anyone in here who has never trusted in Jesus, never tasted the sweetness of salvation and the hope that exists in inheritance in the kingdom of God, even now, God, would by your spirit, would you move them, compel them just to pray a simple prayer of faith saying, God, I need you, I have sinned against you, and I want to know forgiveness in Christ. God, for all of us, would you help us this season to enjoy your gifts more deeply, more clearly, more thoughtfully than we ever have? Would you lead us to worship as we savor the good things that you've given us, the tall East Texas pines and the beautiful sunsets, clean air to breathe, clean water to drink? God, would you make us a community who worships you as we enjoy you in your gifts? And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.